0: Hey y'all, I'm Solejo, and you're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. So even if you've been living under a log, well, maybe especially if you've been living under a log, <laughs> you probably know that you know there's kind of a mushroom thing going around. It's uh, like a mushroom mania, or like a fungus furor, or a mycelium cult.
1: Well, first it was kale, then chia seeds. Now there's a new it food in town. Can you guess what it is? It's the Mighty Mushroom. Mushrooms are popping up just about everywhere, on supermarket shelves, in snacks, coffee, broths, and supplements, even in personal care products.
0: There are articles, documentaries, cookbooks, TikTok series all about fungi. According to Consumer Reports, people spent more than $111 million on fresh mushrooms in January alone. It's a whole thing. So I wanted to talk about this, and one of the best people I know to talk about this is Dr. Gordon Walker. Based in the North Bay, he's a molecular biologist, a mushroom expert, and something of a social media celebrity.
1: I've been working to educate and entertain people about mushrooms, because when I got into them, I realized that there was a real lack of kind of cool mushroom media that was engaging, and. I figured I'd fill the void.
0: With over 1.4 million followers on TikTok and another 300,000 on Instagram, Gordon's passion for shrooms is clearly infectious. He not only educates people on specific species, but makes weird sounds with them too. So today's episode is a little different. It's a trimmed and lightly edited version of a conversation with Dr. Walker that took place at a live event in San Francisco a few weeks ago for Extra Spicy's season three launch. So if you hear people laughing and reacting to what we're saying, that's why. Also, I know this is audio only, but I want you to imagine the outfit that I wore to this. It was a mushroom dress, very cute, plus a super cute mushroom cardigan because I am very cool. Anyway. This event was sponsored by Alaska Airlines, so stay tuned after the episode for an after-show special with your Korean dad, Nick Cho. It's not my Korean dad; he's your Korean dad, obviously. And now here's my conversation with Dr. Gordon Walker. I don't know why I love mushrooms so much. It feels like this <laughs> unconscious draw that just, you know, compels me. So. Can you explain, like, what is the sickness?
1: I mean, I I think we all have some sort of deep animal attraction to mushrooms. And sometimes the flip side of that is it's you have a love for mushrooms, but some people have a real hate. There's There's mycophobia, there's disgust and revolt that goes along with it. And I'm not surprised by that in some ways because the American attitude towards mushrooms is that's poisonous, don't touch that. And so as children, we're taught to fear fungi. We're taught to learn that there's this unknown thing that we can't see, because the majority of, of fungi are microscopic, so you don't see them. The bodies of mushrooms and mycelium is down in the substrate, it's in the wood, it's in the ground, so it's completely cryptic and hidden up until this mushroom bursts up. And it's this ephemeral thing that's only around for a couple of days, or maybe a couple of weeks at most, for the most part. And we don't know what they are, right? There's some that you can eat, there's some that can kill you, there's some that can make you trip balls. And it's really difficult for a lot of people to comprehend that the majority of mushrooms are just mushrooms.
0: So I want to paraphrase this quote from Tumblr. <laughs> yeah, go for it. That, <laughs> if you've heard of that website, that made me think mushrooms are kind of scary. Mm-hmm. And it is, you can't kill me in any way that matters. And that's a mushroom. Uh, it's a dialogue. It's like, mm-hmm. That's what a mushroom is saying to someone who's holding a hypothetical gun. It's, like, very complicated because it's Tumblr. But... <laughs> It made me feel like, okay, there's a, there's a dark side to them that is like very exciting and maybe a little sexy.
1: Maybe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, in a conversation that we had before this, you said that fungi are socialist and non-binary. Like, yes. there's, there's, there are many things that are threatening about them, if, the, you, if you're yeah, thinking as like an American, too.
1: Very anti-establishment um, <laughs> and very anti-capitalistic, I think. Explain. Okay. Uh, Well, mushrooms. And what I'm talking about when I say mushrooms is sometimes we're referring to mycelium. Just to be very clear, the mushroom itself is a fruit or a flower. It is just the reproductive organ of that mycelium. It's not really alive. Like it is breathing in the same way that we are. Mushrooms are catabolic, so they break down organic matter to make energy and they sweat just the way that we do and exhale CO2 from, well, inhaling oxygen. So in some sense, it, like the mycelium is the thing that's actually alive, mm. and the mushroom is really just this, this sort of temporary manifestation of that mycelium. But mycelium is in soil. It's white, fluffy stuff that's kind of amorphous. And to paraphrase a quote from uh, my friend Merlin Sheldrake in his book, Entangled Life, he says, mycelium is a way of life that challenges the animal imagination. And that's because mycelium has no central organization. There is no head, there is no, no fingers, no toes, no eyes, no sensory organs. It is this amorphous, white, fluffy stuff that grows through soil and through wood. And, it's, and it grows in all directions, but it also displays intelligence. And it has the capacity to make really complex decisions about what it's doing. And that is inherently just kind of a scary thing to manifest, like what is this thing in the soil that we don't understand? Um, what it's also doing in terrestrial forest ecosystems is there are what are called ectomycorrhizal fungi. So these are um, things like chanterelles, porcini, rustlas, there's a whole bunch of mushrooms that partner with trees. So they're in sort of a symbiotic relationship with the tree. There's a give and go between the mycelium and the actual tree itself. And all of that mycelium is working to link together trees in the forest ecosystem. So instead of having just singular trees, the entire forest is essentially all paying into the social security net that is being shared around by the mycelium. And so there's been actual experiments. Um, Suzanne Simard and and her husband, uh, Dan, were people that essentially fed radio-labeled carbon to a tree and watched it end up in another tree, transferred there by action of the mycelial network.
0: So you're saying like forests are like natural welfare states? Pretty much. But they've evolved that way.
1: They've evolved because it's the most efficient way for them to exist. And because having that, let's, let's this is an arbitrary number, but like 80% goes to the tree, 20% goes to the social security network. They're all paying into that network and they're all able to draw from that network. If a tree gets sick, or a tree dies and is replaced by a younger tree, those sick trees or young trees can draw on that network when they need it and then pay back later in life.
0: So there is some like sort of revolutionary potential to mushrooms being trendy. Definitely. Like they can inspire us to action or other ways of thinking about, I don't know, organizing ourselves.
1: Yeah, and you see that in the mushroom community. You see that with mycologists because mm-hmm. you have people from so many different walks of life coming in and they're so excited. And I think because people are so excited about a particular topic like mushrooms, it breaks down a lot of the social barriers that might be there in terms of like age or sex or other things that would get in the way of people having relationships with each other because they're just so excited about a mushroom that they don't care. They just are excited to find other people who are as nerdy as they are.
0: So I do want to kind of bring up, though, in a recent article in the Washington Post, um... Someone who goes under the moniker of Black Forager, Alexis mm-hmm. Nelson, yeah. uh, spoke about how actually, like at least North American mycology clubs are really, and you know, to quote, like very white and very they male. Are. They are. Um, so, what happened? What went <laughs> wrong? <laughs> if, if mushrooms are supposed to appeal to everyone, then yeah. like why? I,
1: I think there's been a bit of a generational gap, um, and a lot of those clubs are dominated by people in their sixties and seventies. And there was a real lack of, I think, Gen Xers that got into mushrooms. Um, And we've had people like Paul Stamets who've been out in the public eye for a while. But if everyone who talks about mushrooms looks like me or Paul Stamets, it's going to disenfranchise parts of society. And so like Alexis has become super famous for what she's doing. And it's awesome, because it's drawing so many more people into the field. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens with some of those mycology societies is there's a level of kind of gatekeeping where they worry about people getting into foraging and going into the woods and just wholesale ripping stuff out of the ground because they're so excited. Mm-hmm. And so what myself and Alexis and um, Gabrielle Chaotic Forager, are doing on TikTok is trying to educate millennials and Gen Z about foraging ethics, about responsibility, about inclusivity, and trying to kind of change the paradigm a little bit. Because yeah, there, there is a bunch of old white people in mycology clubs but it's changing it's shifting a lot of those clubs are generally pretty open-minded they're safe places to go and experience new things and a lot of those clubs are also getting into elements of community science where they're drawing on techniques that have been developed in academia but actually putting them in the hands of people that are able to use uh, new sequencing technologies. The cost of DNA sequencing has gone down massively, and the bar to entry is much lower than it used to be. So here in the Bay Area, we have lots of people doing sequencing. Um, One guy of note, Alan Rockefeller, has been doing tons of sequencing and identifying new kinds of psilocybe species, which is the magic mushroom that everyone gets so excited about. But Alan is like a world-class expert. Uh, in Pennsylvania, we've got William Padilla Brown. He was in the Fantastic Fungi movie, and he's doing all sorts of cool stuff with cordyceps. There's a tremendous number of younger people that are getting into this from a lot of different backgrounds, and it's it's good to see that because we, we need that. It, much like a forest system, the more diversity we have, the stronger of an ecosystem we are. And so that's, again, we talk about the lessons we can learn from mushrooms. That's what I see.
0: Mm, I really love mushroom hunting also, yes. I guess I know there's some weight to using the to word forage to, you know, so I guess you say gather, hunt, I don't know. You get a lot uh, though of, of, of pushback on TikTok though from people who just think you're doing the wrong thing or like are trying to mushroom-splain to you all the things that, you, you like that? Thank you.
1: It's, it's a good one.
0: <laughs> um, it's just, you must have so much patience. My patience runs
1: thin on a regular basis. And you'll see it in the comments, because sometimes I like, I'm going down. If there's like thousands of comments, I go down to the first couple, I try to answer them well. And by the end, I'm just like, Google is free. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the main thing I try to do when I put content online is to get people to research themselves. And we talked about a little of this before, but I always try to present a common name for a mushroom, and then also a scientific name. And that way, when you have a common name, it's really easy to get confused. You Google a common name, and it, you get all sorts of bullshit. And you get a lot of things that are like not necessarily specific to the mushroom you talk about. You Google the scientific name, and you're going to find primary literature papers. You're going to find people really talking about that specific mushroom. And you can learn so much more from it. For a while, TikTok had a feature where I could include Wikipedia links. So again, people are like, what is this? And I'm like, literally just look at the link. Like, it is right there in front of you. All you have to do is click that, and you will learn all the things you want to know about this mushroom. Um, so, yeah, I, I do run thin on patience, and there's quite a bit of gatekeeping. I think there's a few issues in particular that face gatekeeping within the mushroom community. Maybe the biggest one is the uh, debate over whether you should cut or pluck a mushroom.
0: I saw this. Yeah, yes. you, you've yeah. seen this. There's yeah. a lot of beef.
1: Yeah, yeah. it gets there's me really heated. Um, <laughs>
0: I mean I love hearing about the drama within like you know individual kind of activities mm-hmm. hobbies tell me more are there other ones
1: So so I mean the the conception as it goes is that somehow cutting a mushroom off at the base and leaving the base of the mushroom in the ground Mm -hmm. will help more mushrooms grow because pulling up the roots of a mushroom which mushrooms don't have roots because they're not plants so this misunderstanding is is rooted in the fact that people still misunderstand that mushrooms are not plants so the idea is that cutting it is essentially somehow guaranteeing there'll be more mushroom harvest in the future And the problem with this is the mushrooms that people get really activated about are particularly like porcini on chanterelles, which are ectomycorrhizal mushrooms. So those mushrooms are, the mycelium is in the ground, deep in the ground, associated with the roots of those particular trees. When a mushroom fruits up, it's probably just like a single thread of mycelium that is going up and they're pushing a lot of resources and sugars and other things to like build that mushroom as it grows. But if you pick that mushroom, you're not disturbing the roots of the mushroom because those are attached to like the roots of the tree. So people are again physi- like misunderstanding the physiology of fungi and how they grow. And there's this assumption somehow, again, rooted in plants, it's not a bad assumption because if you, there's a lot of plants, if you yank them up by the root, you kill the plant. That's not how mushrooms work. And so to me, when people make that really like strong opinionated thing like you have to cut at the base, I'm like, well, where did you learn that? And it's like, well, probably from your grandfather or some old white guy at a foraging club told you this thing. And you just assumed it was true because it was a credible mushroom person. And they told you this. <laughs> there was a study done in 2006. It's like Eggly 2006 Conservation Biology. It was a 30-year systematic study that was done in Switzerland where they had a plot that was cut and a plot that was pluck. And they saw no significant difference in the number of mushrooms that came up or the size of the fruiting bodies. So to me, from a scientific perspective, that says there's really no significant difference between cutting versus plucking. There was a separate study done in Oregon, and again, there's a very limited number of studies on this, so there should be more. The study in Oregon, essentially, the authors concluded that they thought, well, like, maybe it would actually be better to pluck it because cutting it leaves a piece of the mushroom in the soil, which could allow bacteria and other things to potentially invade down into the mycelium that's in the roots. So if anything, maybe it's better to pluck than cut. But that being said, my best practice, what I like to do Mm -hmm. is I generally will pluck the mushroom not always, sometimes I cut them. Stuff like polypores, which are growing indeterminately along the edge, I'd like to cut those because if you slice it off the whole base, the whole thing dies. Or if you cut off the leading edge, it keeps growing kind of thing. Um, but I like to take like one of these mushrooms and I'll trim up the bottom and put all those cuttings back into the hole where I got the mushroom out of and then cover it back up because I don't want the hole to dry out and I want to leave some of the mushroom matter there for the bugs and slugs to get after it. So that's kind of how I do things
0: you know, I think you're competing, especially on TikTok, Mm -hmm. you're competing with the people who are like in bed, like scrolling between like car crash videos, right? And like dances and then like the mushroom stuff and they're not gonna bring their best selves to you, unfortunately.
1: Well, there's a very specific, like mushroom TikTok has become a niche and I'm, I'm proud to say that I think I've been like a leader in trying to make that mushroom niche a thing. I'm not the only one people like Alexis and Gabrielle some other really great accounts have like built a whole community of people that care about mushrooms and it's amazing to me because I think when I started there was like I saw one mushroom video on TikTok and was like maybe I should join this like it blew up why my stuff might blow up and it did in a way that I could have never predicted.
0: Yeah how does it feel to be like a mascot you know a brand a a non-human
1: weird very weird i don't know i'm glad that we live in the age of COVID. and sometimes i can just put a mask on um it i never wanted to put myself in like my face on my account when i started my instagram it was really just like i wanted to hyper focus on mushrooms and then over the years i realized okay short format videos are really good and also people really identify with like a picture of a person holding a mushroom the unfortunate part is that my face holding mushroom has been used by thousands of scammers and bots to trick people into trying to buy illicit drugs online. What? Yeah, so... Ooh. And this is a problem that the, the platforms do not give a fuck about creators and people stealing their images um, and using them as bots. Mm. Um, and I'm sorry I swore about that, but I feel very emotionally strong about this because I've had people contact me and be like, bro, I tried to buy mushrooms from you and you scanned me. <laughs> and I'm like, I... I, like for a very long time, I, my profile picture just said, "Do not buy drugs from me on the internet." Um, <laughs> and I've even put it on shirts because I was like, "It's a scammer. It's a bot. It's somebody who is trying to elicit your personal information and get your financials and scam you." But they're using my face to do it, and I find that really frustrating because like Instagram and TikTok have been very slow at responding to things like that.
0: I want to talk about the dark side of mushrooms okay. becoming trendy because yes. you know I've certainly felt the call to go out into nature and just like grab all the little guys because it's just, you know, the, that animal instinct of like, I want all, all the guys in my basket. Yeah, what are the bad things about about that impulse?
1: So, I mean, like I said, like, I think people, older people in my college clubs are very fearful of this, like, wave of young people who want to get into foraging because they are afraid of that. And I've seen that. I've been out at Salt Point. Salt Point is a phenomenal park. It's an amazing place to go mushroom hunting. Unfortunately, it is one of the only places that people know they can go more mushroom foraging because the Native Plant Society of California passed a bill without consulting any mycologists that made hunting in state parks illegal or hunting mushrooms in state parks illegal. Oh, I
0: would imagine for, like, native Californians, that's a huge deal.
1: It is. Yeah, and it really, like, the mushroom community lobbied and were like, can we at least have Salt Point, Jackson State Forest, and um, Point Reyes? And you can go mushroom foraging at those places. Point Reyes and Salt Point, you can go. There's limits on how much you can pick. And then at Jackson, you have to buy a permit. Um, But the problem is people should be spread out. I've mm-hmm. been at Salt Point and run into a group of people like, we drove up from LA. And I was like, what's in your basket? And they had every single mushroom they found. Not a single one was edible. <laughs> and I was like, okay guys, you are the people that these old people in my college clubs are worried about. You drove nine hours from LA to go mushroom foraging, but didn't know a single thing. You picked everything you saw. And I was like, okay, we're going to take all these mushrooms and put them back into the woods because none of these are edible. I found like one or two is like, you could eat this if you want to, but like the rest of the stuff, let's just put it back. And they were just so excited. I, I, spent a while talking to them and showing them things cuz all they wanted to do was learn but there is a desire to go out there and just pick stuff and that's where hopefully um, through education we can change people's approach and say hey maybe like take a picture you know in many ways like leave no trace try to like walk in and walk out without doing too much damage to the forest ecosystem cuz other people want to go see stuff and that's a thing that gets leveraged at me a lot as people are like hey, I would've just left that mushroom for someone else. I'm like, well, I was foraging, and there was a bunch of them, so what you see on camera is just a representation of like one thing. People are like, well, what was the purpose of you cutting up that mushroom? And I'm like, well, first of all, people like ASMR content, and I'm just making it for them. Usually there's like hundreds of that mushroom out in the woods, so me cutting up a single one and then leaving it in a pile for like bugs and slugs is not a big deal, because that mushroom probably would've molded over in like a day or two anyhow. Um, so I think that the dark side is there is there's gatekeeping, but there's also people getting a little too excited and not being aware of like the ethics and the sustainability. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, smoke that is being blown in terms of uh, adaptogens and supplements, and I think that's part of the dark side, is that we're seeing people make a lot of money off being like, microdose on this thing! And you're like, psilocybe or illegal? Anyone who's selling a microdose tablet is either doing something illegal or they're lying to you. Um, so there's a lot of bullshit out there for lack of a better term mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's part of the dark side
0: so i wanted to ask because you mentioned asmr yes.
1: too.
0: what can you get out of a mushroom as far as <laughs> sound and sensory information go
1: so i'm i'm a really big tactile person so i like touching stuff and i think a really important point to make is that you can touch all mushrooms even poisonous mushrooms you can touch them and that's because the toxins in mushrooms do not permeate skin so you don't want to eat it And don't put it in your mouth, but you can touch literally any mushroom. There's like one mushroom in Australia that like maybe if you like really rubbed it all over you would give you like kind of a bad rash. But for the most part, everything is touchable. And that's really cool, because like feel this lion's mane. It's a cool texture. It's like, it's it's a little, it's 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 a little furry. It's like a little fuzzy. (laughs) Like, you know, feel this mushroom. This is like super solid. No. Is it too phallic?
0: It's a little too okay. phallic. How
1: about, uh, how, here, you were, you were touching one of these morels earlier. Yeah, just I, touch like morel I like it. this. Yeah, I like so this. It's friendly. But morels, morels conjure fear for a lot of people because people get tripophobia from that. See all the little irregular-shaped holes? Oh. That's part of mycophobia, too. People look at mushrooms and are like physically revolted by what they look like. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to keep giving you free exposure therapy by showing you all of this cool <laughs> thing, stuff that I think is cool. Mm-hmm. I like touching them. I like you know smelling them.
0: I like the ones that look like they're bleeding. That's, that's very exciting. That's hypnel
1: peckii. That is, that is my, the lock screen on my phone. Um, oh, yeah,
0: disgusting. <laughs> I love it.
1: Yeah, people, people get really freaked out by that one. Uh, like, I think learning is very much a visual thing, but it's a, it's a touch. It's a smell. Use all of your senses to understand what you're finding. And that's what I tell people, too, is like, when you go out for a hike, don't be overwhelmed by how many different mushrooms there are. Just learn one mushroom at a time. Uh, and you do that by picking them up, by smelling them, by touching them, by learning what looks similar. But if, for a lot of things, they're like, what people are just like, give me a rule. I'm like, there is no rule of thumb. A, the rule of thumb is a terrible thing to say because it was based on like the size of a switch that you could beat school children with in in England. Oh my God! So, like, don't use that phrase. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the the problem with fungi and the problems with mushrooms in general is that they are uh, impossible to kind of define they defy categorization Mm. so every time you come up with a rule like don't eat mushrooms with white gills there's plenty of mushrooms you can eat with white gills there's some that can kill you but there's plenty that won't and it's the same thing like leaves of three let it be like there's plenty of plants that have three three leaves that aren't poisonous and there's even times like poison oak or poison ivy present with not just three leaves and so those are not robust rules the better thing to do is not get a general rule it's to learn each mushroom specifically
0: can you walk us through your assortment that you brought? Sure,
1: sure. So we have a big assortment of uh, commercially grown mushrooms and then one wild uh, variety that I foraged yesterday. So this is probably the number one mushroom that I tell people to try if they say they're mycophobic or they say they don't like mushrooms. This is lion's bane, heresium aranasius. Uh It's a, a beautiful white rot polypore that grows on oaks. You find, I find this a lot in Napa. Uh, especially in like, a good wet year, um, it'll be growing on like dead and dying oak trees.
0: I see that in a lot in like vegan crab cakes
1: yes yeah it's it's a phenomenal has sort of a seafood like texture. Its okay. flavor is very mild. it has a slightly mushroomy flavor. I mean you can give it a give it a sniff. Horum <laughs> to me have a very specific smell mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and and that's the thing a lot of people forget that like foods generally taste the way they smell. So you want to know how a mushroom's gonna taste, just smell it you know it's there's not some giant mystery there it'll it'll taste what it smells like it's going to taste different once you cook it and you put sauces and seasonings on it but that is the base flavor of that mushroom so lion's mane is phenomenal texture it's really awesome it gets thrown around a lot as being something that has like neurogenic properties i've only seen very limited evidence in like their in vitro system so like not in a human being but in like a mouse or on a test tube kind of thing um, I don't take lion's mane supplements, assuming it's gonna make me smarter or somehow make me more focused. I just think it's delicious. So I tell people, instead of spending 50 bucks on supplements, why don't you go spend 50 bucks on lion's manes or grow kits and just share them with your friends. That'll be more fun. We have king trumpets. So these are Pleurotus eringi. I don't always know how to pronounce the species name, but I just kind of go for it anyhow. People will at least know what you're talking about if you pronounce it phonetically. If you go to mushroom things, you'll hear people pronounce things different ways. And as long as they're phonetic, people will still be able to understand what you're referencing. If you start saying other weird things, then they're not going to know. But that's where common names get so confused, because people will disagree. Or they'll use the same common name, but be talking about completely different mushrooms. If you say Pleurotus serengi, or you say it a different way, you'll at least know you're talking about the king trumpet mushroom. So these are really meaty, really great. People make like vegan scallops with them, so you can cut nice thick things and do some cross hatching and, and fry it up in, in butter or whatever you want. Um, these are shimeji, or beach mushrooms. I'm not even going to try to say the species name of them, because it's absurd. Uh, but these are some of my favorites. Oh, yeah, sorry, here. Uh, these are the lion's mane and the king trumpets. A lot of these are grown with a Japanese mushroom production method where they take a plastic jar, they pack it full of, like, a substrate. So it's usually, like, wood chips and, and agricultural runoff kind of stuff and a little bit of rice bran. They core it out in the middle. They add liquid mycelium and then let it colonize for, like, three months in a, in a relatively warm room. Then they move it, the, the colonized jar to a cool room with lots of humidifiers and the mushroom's fruit. And so they fruit out of the tops of these jars, and they cut them off, and that's how they come to you. So these don't really need washing because they never touch dirt in their life. They were wood-grown mushrooms, unlike the agaricus bisporus, the, the button, the portobello. Those were grown in fermented chicken shit. So I wash those because I don't like eating stuff that grows in shit.
0: So these are like the nobility of the mushrooms. These are,
1: for me, yeah. And they call these exotics or specialty mushrooms. And I think they're just mushrooms. You go to Asia, there's nothing exotic about these. These are everywhere. This is what people
0: eat. sounds like racism. It
1: is a little bit, I think, yeah. There's also some real mushroom racism that people have against stuff like amanitas. Because some amanitas are toxic, some are delicious edibles. But people just hate amanitas because there are toxic ones. Uh, And then lastly, we have morels. Um, These are the true morcella. These are some of the most sought after mushrooms in the world. They're absolutely awesome, Uh, they taste super good. I found these yesterday up in a burn in El Dorado County. So everything else here was cultivated but these came out of the ground.
0: Amazing, okay.
1: So you should wash these. Yes, (laughs) I will. put them in a salad spinner after.
0: (laughs) But they didn't grow in chicken shit. They did not grow in chicken shit. Well, thank you so much for educating me and everyone else in this room about the wonderful world of fungi and mushrooms. If people wanna find your TikTok and your Instagram and all of that, Mm -hmm. where do they go? Fascinated
1: by fungi. I've got a website, too. I have some pretty cool merch. Um, lots of fun mushroom designs. I've worked with artists to design. Uh, I've got a YouTube. I've got a Pinterest, a Twitter, a Twitch. Uh, I'm on like every imaginable social media platform. Because I've been de-platformed a couple times as well. I got kicked off TikTok multiple times as my account was growing. Um, again, because people are mycophobic, I think it's the primary reason.
0: They reported you for like nasty mushrooms. Yeah, videos. I got a lot
1: of reports, especially when I was live streaming. I was sitting there like tapping mushrooms, and people would report me as like, for abuse. Well, they'd be like, "This is dangerous, illegal activity," and be like, "How? <laughs> like what? I don't know." Again, mycophobia. So I'm just doing that free exposure therapy thing. Um, but yeah, you can find me on the internet. That's that's where I am.
0: Well, thank you so much again.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks
0: for these mushrooms.
1: Yeah, you're uh, you are gonna have to eat these or cook these. You're doing something with them. Make a hot pot. Okay, cool. Morels are probably just fried those in butter, but like everything else is a good hot pot mushroom. Okay. So,
0: thank you. Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> thank you everybody. And thank you, Gordon. Thank you. You're listening to the Extra Spicy podcast. Stay tuned after the break for a special after show brought to you by Alaska Airlines. And if you like this episode, you can support the newsroom behind it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com/pod.
2: Welcome! This special after show of Extra Spicy is supported by Alaska Airlines. Let's get to know Alaska Airlines Care Coalition member Nick Cho. Nick is the co-owner of Wrecking Ball Coffee Roasters. He rose to internet fame on TikTok and YouTube as your Korean dad. To learn more about Alaska Airlines and what makes them the most caring airline, visit sfchronicle.com slash Alaska Airlines. How about we start with a speed round of questions? Great. Okay. Mild or spicy? Oh,
3: definitely spicy.
2: What's your go-to karaoke song?
3: Karaoke. Um, She's Like the Wind by Patrick Swayze. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's a new one for me. I love it. Uh, Introvert or extrovert? Oh,
3: definitely extrovert.
2: Are you good at telling jokes? You know, people say I'm
3: funny, but I'm really not a joke guy.
2: Okay. Do you sing in the shower?
3: You know, I studied voice in college, but I don't sing in the shower. I just lather, rinse, and repeat.
2: What's a skill you'd like to master?
3: Mm. You know, I wish I was better at remembering people's names when I meet new people.
2: Do you remember my name?
3: (laughs) I mean, it says in the corner, it says Pam, so it's cheating.
2: Most used app on your phone?
3: Oh, come on. It's TikTok, of course.
2: Cat person or dog person?
3: I'm a dog person, but I do also love cats.
2: Song you have on repeat right now?
3: It's funny. It's actually Fight the Power by Public Enemy.
2: What keeps you up at night?
3: Oh, caffeine. You know, if I have co- <laughs> it's unfortunately it's, it's as I'm getting older, if I have coffee after like even 12 noon, very often I can't sleep until three or four in the morning. Ugh.
2: Okay. I was expecting something like solving the world's problems or <laughs> <laughs> just like caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> Camping or mint on the pillow?
3: You know, I stay in a lot of hotels and I haven't seen a mint on a pillow in a really long, long time.
2: I don't think they do that anymore. I don't
3: think they do that anymore either.
2: It's a shame. Window or aisle? <sighs>
3: Window. I'm a window person. I can do a cross-country flight and just sit and not get up. So window.
2: Wow. That's impressive. Last trip you took?
3: You know, I just flew back from New York only yesterday. It's a great city.
2: Okay. Speed round over. (laughs) You ready to get into this? Yeah. Nick Cho, better known as your Korean dad. Well, I'm glad we get to talk today about your journey to becoming a beloved TikTok, what? Influencer, <laughs> host, cr- creator? What term do you prefer?
3: Um, I guess content creator or influencer. Influencer is okay. Mm-hmm. I think that people like to sort of make fun of that words from time to time. But I, I think that it's it's appropriate and it's the one that we're using. So it's all good.
2: Yeah, it, it would seem very appropriate, especially in your case. It, it kind of seems like the internet delivered you to us at the exact moment we needed you during the pandemic. So tell me about why you started posting videos.
3: Yeah, I started making random TikTok videos in 2019, but the Your Korean Dad video started in April 2020. And, you know, I am Korean and I'm a dad. But I always like to say that the most important part is the your part. You know, offering myself up to the viewer felt like something nice I could do. But I really had no idea that folks would respond the way they have. It's really been really special.
2: So what is it, do you think? Why do people respond so positively to your videos, myself included?
3: Yeah, oh, thanks. You know, if I'm going to be totally honest, I know there was uh, there's a very fine line between what I do in my TikTok videos and what folks might call cringe. You know, if you're not <laughs> in the right mood or the right mindset for it, my videos can frankly be kind of weird. But, you know, when people <laughs> get it, I think it's because they see that I really do care about them, about accepting everyone without judgment. And just wanting to give them a Korean dad experience.
2: Well, you've certainly come to mean a great deal to people who watch your content. And some comments on your videos I noticed include things like, you know, you're amazing, you've helped me through tough times, this generation's Mr. Rogers. I, I love that comparison. <laughs> wow. We need more people like this on the internet. Uh, words cannot describe how happy these videos make me. So what is the sense of responsibility that comes with having that level of connection to your viewers? Yeah,
3: wow. It is a really big responsibility, isn't it? But it's a big responsibility to be a dad, you know, whether I'm Mm -hmm. talking to young people or folks who who are a lot older than me. My focus has always been the fact that we're all actually children. You know, when we grow up, our child self doesn't go away. That's who we are on the inside. And we grow more of ourselves, like all around that child as we get older. And that's who I try to speak to and direct my videos to. And I think that's something that doesn't happen a lot these days.
2: So how, how did you react to becoming so popular so quickly?
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. am, I, am I popular? Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just I'm just happy to get to connect with folks.
2: You have two children. Yeah? I do. How did they react to your popularity on TikTok and YouTube?
3: Um, you know, they've said that everyone gets the two-dimensional version of me, but they get the three-dimensional version, you know, and it's just snippets. But yeah, I've asked them and they say, yeah, it's all our dad that we recognize. Um, they've been having a lot of fun with all of it, but they have been trying to keep it a little bit like on the DL with in their social circles. <laughs> it's sort of like a if you know, you know kind of thing.
2: Gotcha. Yeah. You co-own Wrecking Ball Coffee Roasters in the San Francisco Bay Area, and you also talk about food a lot in your videos. So I get the sense that to you, coffee is not just coffee. And food is not just food. But there may be a way to show what you value, show that you care. Is that fair to say?
3: Yeah, you know, I always said that giving someone something to eat or drink is among the most intimate of human interactions that we have. I mean, really, human beings are any kind of beings, actually, right? But yeah. when it gets... Mixed up with business and customers and costs and profits, you know, we lose a lot of that intimacy because folks on each side are so focused on themselves that they don't really see the care that's actually taking place. I think that's true about a lot in life, though, you know, there's so much love and care and generosity and grace that's occurring all around us, and we so often fail to recognize it. So I want to try to remember and maybe help other people remember, too.
2: Have you always had this way of thinking or is this something you came into later in life?
3: You know, when I started my first coffee shop, it's been over 20 years now, I think, that realizing the responsibility of giving people things to eat and drink and, you know, what's missing there very often. I think it really started then.
2: So several of your videos, and I really appreciate this, talk about rules around eating in a restaurant where maybe a person wouldn't be familiar with the customs. Mm. So you assure us that it's okay, that there are really no rules when it comes to enjoying a meal prepared with love. But why is that message so important to share?
3: Oh, you know, I think customs are really important. You know, learn what you can about other cultures, especially cultures Mm -hmm. that you appreciate and find interest in. But I think that when people worry too much about doing the right things the right way, it can confuse the issue a bit. If you're eating, let's say, Korean food and you're not Korean, you don't have to, like, pretend to be a Korean person. You just be yourself, right? Also, at the same time, like, learn what you can about the culture, too. You know, do both of those things for as many cultures as you can.
2: That's great advice. (laughs) All right. I absolutely love the cappuccino today. (laughs) Latte art. It puts me in the right mindset when I see one of those like, all right, here's here's how today's going to go. So this is where your latte art tells us sort of the advice for the day. Can you describe for our listeners what that looks like and how it all came about?
3: I mean, you know, part of the TikTok culture is sort of like call it copying or inspiration or sort of like remixing what other people have done. And a lot of folks who are on TikTok have seen the bones, no bones, you know, videos. And so I just kind of riffed on that and came up with this idea that I would pour latte art and sort of use that sort of to like, you know, give advice for the day inspired based on whatever kind of comes out. So it it was fun. I just did it for a little bit. I'm just trying different things from time to time.
2: I like it. Did you have a, a latte art advice for today?
3: Oh, you know, I went to a coffee shop here in Los Angeles where I am right now to get a oat milk cappuccino, and it was a nice sort of like concentric ring around a heart kind of thing. So when I see stuff like that, I just think about, you know, remember to take care of yourself.
2: Oh, I like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's good advice for today. You travel a lot, yes? (laughs) I do. And in some of your videos, you've taken viewers around the world, like hockey game in Canada, definitely all over New York City. I enjoyed the pizza video. Take us on a trip now. Where would we go? What would we see? What would we eat? And why did you choose this place? Mm -hmm.
3: You know, right now, the place I really want to travel the most is definitely Korea. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to go every year, but I haven't really been able to go for the past couple of years. America is my homeland, but Korea is my motherland. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks have that sort of multicultural background. And I think it's really important that we learn to truly value that in our society. You know, when we say we're a nation of immigrants, connecting with the people and places that our folks immigrated from is something that all like non-Indigenous people can partake in. So that's kind of what comes to mind for me.
2: What do you love most about traveling?
3: Oh, it's definitely like visiting people. You know, I'm lucky to have friends all over the world. And with travel being such a special privilege, as some of us get to do a lot, you know, seeing folks that I care about and and making new friends, you know, that's the best part of traveling for sure.
2: So now tell me about the Alaska Airlines Care Coalition, right? You get to hang out with a care bear, which I just think is incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, How did this come about? What is it? Why are you involved in
3: it? Yeah. So I'm on a special committee called the Care mm-hmm. Coalition, who convenes from time to time to address issues around caring, I guess. You know, Can France is the current chair. Yes. And we have Snuggy and Funshine Bear from Care Bears, have Mother Nature, Grandma, there's a Dog, and then there's me, you know. Three members, and we have a quorum in case anyone's wondering. (laughs) You know, Alaska Airlines has actually for real been my family's favorite airline. You know, so when they invited me to take part in the Care Coalition campaign, I was really excited because my experience has really been that they've been the most caring airline in so many different ways.
2: Well, what's next for your Korean dad?
3: Oh, my goodness. What's next? Well, I mean, we'll see. Uh, You know, we've been talking about a couple different TV show concepts, maybe a book, but, you know, no matter what I'm doing, I want it to be about connecting more with folks out there. There's my work, you know, making videos for the internet, but there's also like your work and the work of everyone out there who's trying to make the world a better place. You know, I have so much hope for us to be able to apply our innovative thinking to solve the really important problems out there for people, especially the most marginalized and disadvantaged. You know, there's so much good we can do. And I want to help imagine what that looks like for all of
2: us. Mm. Well, I can absolutely see why you were chosen to be on the CARE Coalition. (laughs) That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, Nick Cho, also known as your Korean dad on TikTok and YouTube, and now part of Alaska Airlines CARE Coalition. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. Likewise, Pam. Thanks for joining us for this special after show of Extra Spicy, supported by Alaska Airlines. Remember to visit sfchronicle.com slash Alaska Airlines to learn more about Alaska Airlines and what makes them the most caring airline.